This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Well, once in a while, we slip into our cadence a little bit of Ask Me Anything. And this is that once in a while. Welcome to the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse or through your favorite podcast channel. We gather here live every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, 9 to 10 Pacific, and we cover a wide range of topics related to decentralizing research and making research participation more inclusive, more accessible for all. Each week we have different topics and different guests, and you can listen to prior episodes, whether here on Clubhouse by clicking the Decentralized Trials name on the upper left. You can follow the club. You can find conversations we've had dating back well over a year. Or we'll see more and more of our content now in 2023 pushed out through your favorite podcast platform. So you can go ahead and if listening there, give a subscribe and stay connected to these conversations. Those topics over the last year have been so wide ranging, whether patient factors around patient experience, patient insights, inclusion and diversity and representation in research. We cover technical considerations from interoperability, real-world data, connected devices. We cover regulatory and policy, privacy, ethical considerations. It's really very wide-ranging. Those topics come from you, this community, this audience. And so if you have a topic on your mind you'd love to see us cover in the weeks or the months ahead, drop a line to myself, to Jane Miles, to Amir Kalali. Do it here on Clubhouse. Do it on Twitter, on LinkedIn. You can even use email, whatever works best for you. And if you don't know how to reach us through those channels, although you you should just give a follow to folks like Jane or uh, or others on LinkedIn. But if you're not sure, you can always drop a line to secretariat at dtra.org. That's our team over at the Decentralized Trials Research Alliance that's helping to keep this community going, sharing, connecting, and moving things forward together. So this week looks a little different for us because this week our guest is all of you. Now, our usual format is we'll have a guest here for that first half an hour, and we'll talk about a particular topic and hear their experiences, and then look to open it up to the room to hear your thoughts, ideas, and questions. This week, a little bit different. We are going to be 
talking in a little more expansive a way. We'll share some thoughts and perspectives on a range of topics, and then we'd love to hear from you, the folks in the audience, what is on your mind this week, this month, this year, as you're working to make research programs work and hopefully work better and smarter and more connected. Now, we'll probably take next week off for the holiday weekend. We will be back on April 14th in two weeks where our guest is going to be Joe Dustin from Medible. And we're going to be covering a really fun topic that Joe set up on LinkedIn. What app or consumer facing tool do you use that you wish existed for clinical trials and clinical research? And there's been some really fun shares there on LinkedIn. We're going to bring that here to Clubhouse in two weeks and have an opportunity to kind of get creative about whether it's Waze or OpenTable or something else entirely that we haven't thought about that you love to use as a consumer and wish had a variant to solve a challenge in clinical research. Jane, I have a hunch you have a thousand and one ideas as well on favorite apps that you'd love to see brought into this world. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, but I'm going to hold that until we have the conversation. That's a great question from Joe, of course. And you can check out Joe's thread over on LinkedIn, Joe Dustin, and uh, and view his posts and see some of the conversation that's already taking place there. Contribute there if you'd like, and then we'll bring that into a great conversation together in just two short weeks. Now, for today, there's a lot going on in our environment. There are some really interesting and challenging environmental trends, macroeconomic trends in our environment around clinical trials, whether we see delays or cancellations of programs, if we see shifts in the portfolio around small molecule and large, and what does that mean for our environment and the impact to our business? What's happening in the world of adoption of decentralized research, and what can we start to expect uh, over the coming weeks and months as it relates to regulatory clarity? So we can cover that and more. And by asking me anything, I'm not suggesting that Jane and I have all of your answers. But what I do like to believe is that the crowd that we gather has a lot of them. And so this is going to be a chance for all of you to contribute to the conversation. You are the panelist. You are the guest this week. So feel free to Take advantage of that hand-raising icon in the lower right. Don't have to wait till the half-hour mark. Anytime in the conversation today, feel free to raise your hand and jump in. You know, some of the things that, you know, I'll plant maybe as um, some, some bugs in folks' uh, minds as we get the conversation going. Uh, some of you know that this week I've had macroeconomics on my mind. I've had these different factors affecting clinical trials for large pharma on my mind. And for one group, I, I spent a, a little bit of time getting my uh, hands into the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act and the changes that are embedded there in terms of Medicare and reimbursement and starting to think through with folks, what are the implications of those changes in Medicare and reimbursement for clinical trials and the drug development portfolio ahead. Um, will that start to trigger some different decisions in pharma around investments in R&D, 
around certain types of molecules in the portfolio. Along with that, we still see challenges in the funding market for biotech companies and some CROs out there that have put out statements of caution that while last year, 2022, had some great numbers for the CRO market for some, some are putting out words of caution around cancellations in the environment, in particular from biotechs until that funding um, uh, situation settles. And then in parallel, we still have a really funky staffing issue out there right now facing our sites, um, where two years ago, many of us were worried about sites shutting their doors, that there wasn't enough, that, 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 that the pandemic was going to crush our sites and they would you know, be down for good. And now we're in this completely opposite direction where many sites are saturated. They don't have enough staff to take on more studies. They don't have to make calls to pharma asking about new studies. They're, they're turning studies away. And what are the implications of that for new study starts? And is that really sustainable? Or are we going to start to see that normalize given that so much of the pull out of our sites was coming from CROs trying to hire clinical research associates? So I think that you know all of this is on the table for your thoughts, ideas, and perspectives today. Or Jane, what's happening in the world of regulatory input and clarity? You know, we, we've seen guidance from China, Japan, Europe. We have guidance, you know, moments away from coming out from the FDA. What can we expect there? What are we already starting to see? And what will be the implications in terms of adoption? Yeah, I'm glad you went down the regulatory um, pathway. And I think what's interesting to me is that in addition to the guidances that are coming my observation is there's a lot more public conversation between decision makers at the FDA and the NIH to really hear from people. What do you think? What should we do? What should we know? And this week I listened into one of those sessions about digital health technologies, which was really fascinating. So by the way, that's available on the Duke Margolis website. If you didn't get to spend four hours listening, but really worthwhile because a lot of conversations around what is and is not under regulatory guidance, what do you need to check in on before you get started, what can you get going with, and then um, share the data after the fact. So really recommend that listening. But Craig, I also wanted to call attention to people, if they didn't know about the NIH RFI, around how to, I'll call it, modernize clinical trials. And I'll ask you what you think NIH and these other agencies are hoping to achieve by putting these RFIs out and asking for public comment. Great call out, right? So um, as Jane mentions, the in the US, we've seen the federal government now, it's still like Q1 for a few more minutes. And we've already seen two requests for information from different divisions of the federal government, specifically calling out decentralized trials. So note number one for me is, if you're a tech vendor in the space and you're saying to your marketing team, man, decentralized trials as a term is, is just beaten to death. We need a different term in this space. Just remember, 
marketing for tech in this space has used the term a lot, but pharma regulators and policymakers are just now embedding that term and normalizing it in their environment. It's probably not yet time to go abandoning and trying to rebrand things now that we see pieces of policy, legislation, um, guidance documents around the world using that term. But it has been interesting, as Jane mentioned. First, we saw the uh, White House Office of Science and Technology Policy working together with other divisions, like the Office of the National Coordinator in the federal government, put out an RFI asking this question about emergency preparedness. What is the infrastructure that this country needs to invest in today to be ready for the next pandemic? And a heavy lean in there was about decentralized clinical trial infrastructure. How can we create certain sustaining infrastructure in this country and keep it in a ready and warm state? Not sitting on ice waiting for the next pandemic, but maybe being able to be used to answer research questions today that then could be repurposed and deployed in the case of another pandemic. And that RFI was open. Many of the, I think a lot of the uh, re responses are now um, hitting the public domain. DTRA held a listening session with many from this community together with OSTP and ONC in response to that request. Uh, that listening session included, you know, a ton of people from our community having the opportunity to share whether spoken word or through the chat and many organizations from our community did rise to the challenge to respond to that RFI. Now, as Jane hints at, we see another RFI uh, coming out. This RFI is coming from uh, the NIH um, and it is looking specifically at the NCATS centers, the National Center for Advancing Translational Science. Um, this is a network of 60 or 70 large academic research centers throughout the country that have certain research infrastructure in place. And NIH is looking to see what is the state of readiness or competency or capability? What are the processes or tools that should be embedded to support decentralized clinical trials across that infrastructure in this country? Great questions being asked by, um, by our agencies that are paying attention to these trends and looking to learn and understand. That RFI is still open. I'll drop the link here in the, uh, in the uh, top of our Clubhouse page. Once again, DTRA will be having a listening session together with colleagues from the NIH where we'll bring members of the community together to share experiences, answer specific questions in a, in, in a conversation online that will be captured, recorded, and shared back with the NIH colleagues who will be joining us for that later this month. Jane, a lot going on, it feels like, from a, a policymaking perspective, and much of it complementing much of the guidance we're seeing coming out. Yeah, the message I take away from it is that there is an understanding or a belief system in play now at the policy level that these tools and methods need to be used more frequently. They're not mandating it. I'm just saying with all that conversation, that's my takeaway as a, um, a supporter of the methods. So I think that's positive. It is positive. And it is a funny thing about that word mandate. I think that, you know, as a, uh, 
you know, as an entrepreneur and innovator, I don't think I want to see things mandated on teams. But I also know that within large complex organizations like pharma companies, things that are nice to have capabilities do end up sitting and languishing, waiting for, you know, folks beyond the early adopters to be ready to, to take advantage. And when I think about change inside of pharma and large complex organizations like those, you know, when new capabilities are available, there's always those teams at the tip of the spear, the 20% of the, of the curve that wants to embrace those new approaches. And there's 20% at the other end of the spear that just wants to retire and be left alone and not have to deal with anything new and different. But that bulk of people in the middle of the curve that are willing and, and ready, but kind of needed to be a little more than a nice to have. And so sometimes in organizations, mandates are needed to drive more meaningful change and adoption. Um, now, I, again, I think when it comes to the NIH and their, their mechanics and certainly the way they're funding, I don't, I don't expect or want them to go dictating to groups that they're funding what is best for their proposals. But um, sometimes mandates actually are, are needed, I think, if organizations really want to make change happen internally. Yeah, I just replayed many conversations in my head with the teams from my past. So thanks for that reminder, actually. <laughs> it felt familiar. But I think we have people in the audience with us today who are really driving that change and adoption. And I would be very interested to hear from people with us today, what is the question that you want answered or what is the question on the minds of your stakeholders that you wish you could answer? That's, I think that's a very nice setup for things. You know, I, there's so many questions I know um, on my mind and that I hear so many friends raising today, whether it's questions around, how do we navigate with 1572s to get things done the way I want to? Or how do I help to manage change in my organization? Or what is adoption really looking like today in the current environment in which we're operating? You know, I was just involved uh, earlier this week in a fabulous conversation with some very smart people, way smarter than me, that had developed a, a great framework over the over the recent years about how do we make sure that there's readiness for research sites, that there's standards to define what makes a great site? And it left me feeling like, what a shame that we're anchoring maybe around the word site. Because when I look at some of the work that's out there, they'll define site as being a building in which the research is taking place. And I'll think to myself, what does it mean to have a, a framework to evaluate if something is a good site. It's a building. The study isn't run by a building. The study is run by the people based on the processes and supported by the technologies that they're using. And so it, it just leaves me wondering time and again, is our, is our use of the term site? Now, I, I am not saying sites are bad. Don't start sicking all of your favorite investigators on me. The investigators, are critical. The staff, the processes around them are critical. The, my question is, is our use of the term site. And the reason I bring that up is 
We have so many new models that are challenging our convention about the physical building. And when we are locking ourselves into using a term that in and of itself ends up getting defined as a building, do we either have to change from using the term site or do we need a more expansive definition of what is a site today? Jane, am I getting too theoretical there? No, I don't think so. But the practical um, how do we do this is something that a couple of new collabs are starting to work on. And a big shout out to people in the audience who are signing up to help us with that. So the first collab is going to tackle the 1572 and regulatory documents and how might they be best used in a DCT setting or how might we actually suggest changes to the documentation and the structure of the documents. So we talked about that a couple of weeks ago here on the clubhouse, but now some people are digging in to try to come up with some recommendations and other tools. The other topic is those alternative site models and um, how exactly we, we best use them, determine what fits when, qualify them, and then support those sites with appropriate oversight for compliance. I don't think it's theoretical. If you're a study team member, those are the weeds you're in today. Collab? What's a collab, Jane? A collab is a collaborative team meant to act a bit like a sprint team, small with lots of collaboration and interaction with a short-term set of deliverables. So probably a three to four month horizon as opposed to a one year horizon to get to outputs and recommendations. So these are available for our friends in the DTRA community at the Decentralized Trials Research Alliance. And keep in mind, DTRA is both for organizations and for individuals. So for many of you in this room, you may work at one of the hundred organizations that are members of DTRA. And if you are not, you can join as an individual and have the capacity to participate. Um, as Jane mentioned, these collabs are meant to be agile and nimble, um, almost uh, micro initiatives within DTRA, really addressing some discrete challenges like this challenge around navigating something that has been with us for decades, a form from the FDA, but a form that requires us to write down names and addresses of where things are happening, which certainly is getting a little tricky in an area where we want that cancer patient to get imaging locally or that vaccine patient may be stepping onto an RV parked outside their church for their next study visit, and somebody else may be dropping into uh, a clinic in their Walgreens. And so what addresses are we supposed to be putting in today's era of modern research? In parallel, other collabs really looking more expansively at this new ecosystem of what is a site. And in particular, I think thinking through questions around compliance and quality and oversight in this new era. So keep your eyes peeled there. And before I bounce over to our friend Joe, uh, Jane, there is something else new going on in the DTRA world. We have circles out there. Do you want to share a bit for the group about what is a circle at DTRA? Sure. So a circle is made up of 
individuals who are focused on a specific functional topic. It doesn't mean that you have to have a certain title or a certain level, but if your daily work involves how exactly do we solve for patient recruitment in DCTs, there's a circle for that. And it'll be a virtual meetup, not on Clubhouse, probably on Zoom and in Slack where there'll be some opportunity to share learnings, to raise questions, and to really drive the topics of interest into a conversation. And the frequency of that conversation will be determined by the circle members. So we have three that are just kicking off. And if you're following DTRA on LinkedIn, you probably saw those posts. The first three circles are around patient recruitment in DCTs, um, data management and the challenges of data management in DCTs, if there are any. And the third is diversity and DCTs and how DCTs are working to solve that diversity problem or what's still needed to make that happen. They are just getting started. You haven't missed anything. It should be a short time commitment, but it is meant to be a rich audience driven conversation. Thanks so much, Jane. Check at that out for those first three circles. We will be adding more based on uh, our learnings with this first group of three. If you're a leader working in data management and enrollment in uh, diversity related and interested in that intersection with decentralized, drop in whether you're an organ a person working at an organizational member or an individual member yourself. We have a question in the chat from Shalon, but uh, and I always love Shalon's questions and perspective, but I'm first going to start with this handsome profile that joined us up here on stage. Joe, welcome. It's always a pleasure to have you here, my friend. If somebody doesn't know you, who are you, Joe Dustin? Oh, man, that's a that's a that's a question I ask weekly sometimes. Um, so my name is Joe Dustin. I'm the VP of ECOA at Medible. Um, I've been 20 years in the industry trying to see how things change and been involved in some of that change. But the topics you're raising, are, we're kind of like at an inflection point, right? And I don't know, I figured I'd just jump up and just talk about really anything because someone has to jump up. Um, ask me anything, right? Your topics are, are provocative. I like I like the fact that we just kind of get over the name decentralized trials. It's, it's in the government documents. They're going to fund it. They're going to need to know what it is. In 10 years, it might change. Right now, it's not going to change, right? So we're, we're at least all over that. Um, when it comes to what a site is, I've been talking to a lot of sites lately, um, and it's very interesting because they all have different end games. So, Joe, when the... you say you're talking to a site, you're standing outside of a building and talking to it? <laughs> I'm screaming at it and shouting at it, and it just doesn't doesn't respond back. But um, I, th I think that uh, the, the kind of, of, of sites that exist, the different kinds, right? So if you think about the numbers from SCRS, which I think is – is it this weekend? They're one of their meetings this weekend? Yes, their diversity, and I think their oncology summit down in uh, Texas. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think so, yeah. I need to go. I haven't been to one of those in a while, but I need to get back out of the house. I uh, last time I checked with them, seventy-five thousand clinical research sites exist. And this is this is a number about round COVID. So 
it may have gone down. It may have gone up. I'm not, I'm not sure. But the definition of a site has changed. So I'm assuming it's going to go up. But they only count at the moment um, clinical research sites defined as hospital systems, academic medical centers, independent research sites, and site networks. You know, and, and some of those overlap, but in essence, 75,000 sites. One third of those sites are independent clinical research sites, right? So those are, those are the Brad Hightowers of the world and, and all that. And, and I think that they have a very different perspective than um, Sloan Kettering, Mayo Clinic, um, you know, the Waterloo, the Waterloo health system in Iowa. Like, they have different needs, right? Different wants. They're running different businesses, they want to attract trials, but they also want to treat patients, and this is very different. So, so the way a site is defined, I think, also has to um, incorporate how we work together in these types of environments. So, when you are doing oncology, you're mostly, if not always, going to go to first a, a hospital or a academic research facility or a cancer center that is, you know, NCI cooperative group or not, and. And you're going to get funding for that, either sponsored or, or from grants and government. And they are going to want to do things the way they want to do things. They see it as a care option, right? Clinical trials is a care option. They, they see it um, as something that they want to be interested in. They want to publish on it. And they see it as, you know, doing their part for industry, helping to get medicine to people faster, saving lives. Um, but if they have their own e-consent, they're damn well going to use their own e-consent. <laughs> <laughs> and if they have their own app that they en enroll patients in, that they can get their medical records in, and they can get their notifications and appointments in, they're absolutely going to be giving that patient that app. And so, a site, you know, when I was at when I was in pharma, we called it site sponsor interoperability. I'm seeing more of this happening post COVID that the, those who have their own systems, they should be allowed to use them, and we need to figure out a way to get that data in a you know regulatory way and more systems that if we're talking technology and process combined, more systems are being implemented in sites now that are, I guess I would consider pharma ready. There's still a lot that are not. And that's like, they're not part 11 compliant. They're not, you know, GDPR compliant. They're not, you know, all these things, but many more of them are. And that's a trend I see rising over the next 10 years. Um, let's be honest. It is a 10 year thing. Um, and I'm just curious to see how the site definition changes because those sites are gonna to wanna to do things on their own. The independent sites are going, some will enable themselves with technology and some won't. They won't be able to afford it. They don't wanna deal with it. They think their current process is easier. Their PI is two years from retirement, doesn't care. All these kind of things are part of it, right? And so a sponsor could offer that to them if they want it. Um, which then still goes down the line of, here you go, site, use the technology we tell you to. And that's still going to consider it to happen for a while. But the slope changes, right? You have to let some of them try something new. And it always will start the one, with the ones with the big IT budgets and probably the, the diseases that require more investment. And so, that, so I'll, I'll get off my soapbox for a minute. But that's how I see sites evolving. And once you add retail pharmacies and mobile trucks and whatnot they're need they're going to need their own systems too so a lot of this topic around 
what is the what is a site and what are those different archetypes uh, that are out there? We're going to turn in a minute over to a person that's knee deep in this topic with Nelson. We do have Vladimir here that I want to turn to next. But before I do, I'd be remiss if I didn't say it's half past the hour and you've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse. Give a tap to the Decentralized Trials name up top if you'd like to follow the club and check out past gatherings here as well as get a preview of upcoming topics. If you're listening on your favorite podcast, give a subscribe there. And perhaps most important, check out the folks that are here in the room with you. Give a tap to different profiles. Give a follow to certain folks you're seeing here over on over on LinkedIn or Twitter. These folks share your interest in today's topic, and they could be your next ally to get something great done later this year. Um, today's topic, unlike our usual cadence of covering rotating topics based on your feedback, today is a little bit of an ask me anything. We're covering really a wide range of different trends, signals, ideas, questions on the minds of people. If you have a question, an idea, a spark, an inspiration that you'd like to bring forward to the group, go ahead, hit that little hand raising icon on the bottom, just like Joe, Vladimir and Nelson did. And with all of that rambling, let's turn over to you, Vladimir, please introduce yourself for folks and share what is on your mind today. Vladimir, if you're new on Clubhouse, your unmute button, lower right corner in the app. I got it. Uh-huh. Okay, now can you hear me? We sure can, Vladimir. Okay, great. Uh, great. I'm Vladimir Schneidman. I'm president of Orbi Consulting. This is a consulting company uh, dealing with broad range of uh, planning uh, in biopharmaceutical industry. And our specifics is we use advanced uh, mathematical uh, tools and techniques to optimize uh, different uh, different kind of aspects of uh, clinical trials in, in particular. Uh, and I have several questions for the audience and hope, uh, hopefully my questions will ignite uh, the discussion. Uh, my, my first question is about site selection uh, in, in a new uh, DCT environment. What, how to select sites? What is, uh, maybe we need to move from site selection to patient selection. Uh, patients should, could be attached to, could be kind of assigned to the site, or it could be remote, or how, how it works in new, in new realities. And uh, this is question number one. Uh, question number two is about cost of decentralized clinical trials. Is it really kind of, uh, we, we, I know about benefits. But how about costs? Because because uh, 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 some staff needs to travel to the patient home. Uh, clinical supply will be directed to the patient uh, patient, and it will increase uh, costs significantly. Where <coughs> where are we staying here? And my last question uh, about uh, about uh, return on investment. Uh, I know about tough study and. Uh, but did somebody do uh, kind of uh, uh, other studies related to the return on investment in decentralized clinical trials? Thank you very much. Great topics that you set up here, Vladimir, both. Uh, so you've hit on 
site selection, and I love this uh, provocative statement, should we be selecting patients, doing patient selection rather than site selection, and how do we select sites in an era where we are looking to incorporate decentralized approaches? This question around the cost of DCT and around the ROI. Um, I think these are all great topics for us. Um, I have my own views on many of these, um, and I'm happy to share my view on them, but I'd like to park these and see if others in the community have some perspective to share. So we're gonna put on the virtual board here, site selection, how do we select sites in an area of decentralized, cost of DCT and ROI. Um, so Vladimir, stick around here. Yes. And let's see what kind of perspective we start to get from folks. Um, I also wanna turn next over to our friend, Nelson. Um, I don't know if we're going to hear any young folks crying in the background for his attention. Let's uh, let's see when he comes off mute. Nelson, introduce yourself for folks who haven't had the pleasure. Hey, everyone. And hi, Craig and, and Jane. And thanks for having me up here. I'm Nelson Rutrick. I own a, a couple of brick and mortar sites um, in Boston that, that do psychiatry and neurology research. Um, and I've started going back to conferences again after having a couple of kids a few months ago. Um, and my, uh, I've been pleasantly surprised actually with what I've at least heard uh, from a bunch of companies that they uh, had been either extremely eager or very scared about embracing anything in DCTs and uh, they've talked more about simply something Craig talks about a lot, adding it as an option to studies that are um, maybe need a, a bit of tweak in how they're designed, but they're um, addressing that now so that there's an option for participants um, to do sort of like the Science 37 Metasite type model and what a few other companies do. Um, where it gives participants this option of doing things virtually, but they're not um, taking all of their trials virtually or uh, turning away from DCTs as a whole. So I've heard a lot of that in the last three conferences or something I've attended um, and was curious if, if maybe that's just what I've been hearing or if you guys have heard more of that sort of liking some middle grounds type of thing there. Thanks, Nelson. And by the way, Nelson, as we as we think about this question, you own a site. What is a site? Yeah, you know, it, in terms of the government's attitude, uh, a site is generally meant I have a principal investigator who works for me because the FDA looks at my data as attached to one of the doctors who is the head doctor on a given study. So my site to them is whichever PI uh, I have overseeing a trial. I think that's a, a very fair perspective. In fact, when we asked some regulators at the DTRA annual meeting this question, they gave a very similar answer saying, um, you don't see the word site in regulations or in GCP, you see investigator in those documents. And even all of our angst around the 1572 is is really meant to be an investigator attestation 
about awareness of their responsibilities. The, the construct of a site and all of this angst about what is a site is, is maybe self-created, but it's in the eyes of regulators is not really a them problem, it's an us problem. So we've got some great topics here. Um, certainly whether it's around trends for adoption, which I do think, Nelson, to your point, try to create more flexibility and options for patients. But if we give the sites flexibility and options, some of that links back to Vladimir's point. Should we be selecting sites when we want to use video or home health? Should we be selecting sites for those studies that are particularly friendly of video and home health? Um, because that's they're the right sites for that study. Or do we just take whatever sites are ready for that study? And if some aren't going to use those approaches, so be it, their patients don't get that option or flexibility. I wanna share something maybe provocative that, in, uh, that came up with Vladimir's question. And Jane, I know you and I have been talking a lot about it this week. This topic of the cost of decentralized, there is a, a cost of burden to the patient. There is a real cost in term that patients bear in our studies by travel, by time off from work, by childcare. There's a cost of the emotional and physical toll on some for very long haul travel to participate in research over and over again. Does decentralized add a new line item to budgets or are these methods actually shifting a cost that is invisible to sponsors, but borne by participants and just shifting that cost over to the sponsor because we want to actually embody our rhetoric of being patient-centric and patient-first. Is this really a new cost? Or is it a cost that has existed for years? We're only first starting to appreciate it and we're starting to take more ownership and responsibility for it. Yes, DCT items will often be new or additional items in a budget for the sponsor, but is it really a new cost for the study? There, that's my soapbox, Joe. How did I do? I think you did fine. The soapbox is uh, is a good thing to have in venues like this. I, you know, I, I like the... Um, they ask me anything thing. When I first started joining Clubhouse during COVID, it was very much like a, there were two different styles of running these meetings, right? It was the panel where everyone talks and then everyone wastes their turn. And then there was like the, <laughs> the all in, just speak up when you have to type thing. These different topics I think is interesting how people should just speak up when they have to. Um, and I, I like it. That's my soapbox. Um, I'm going to get on the soapbox now. Um, yes. <laughs> it's about Jane, I think this is going to be our next theme for an upcoming clubhouse. It's going to be the the soapbox session. Everybody gets the conch for five minutes. It is all good. yours, Jane. It's a conversation then instead of like a panel. We have enough panels in real life. Yeah. Go ahead, Jane. So one of the reasons uh, this whole topic was interesting to me way back at the beginning of time was I thought it gave patients more choice and decision-making power in being part of trials. And Vladimir, you really reminded me of that with your question, how do we do site selection and should we actually be thinking about patient selection? 
So I'm just going to relate an example of a study I got to be part of recently. It's still ongoing. Where we're definitely getting the evidence through this study execution that the patients do want the decision about being in the trial and that they would never hear about it in the brick and mortar site. And that bears out by the differences in recruitment rates in the virtual site model versus the brick and mortar model. Now, there's all kinds of caveats around the study, but I love the idea that the sponsor said, we believe that patients would do this if they had the choice and could decide themselves. And the data is bearing that out right now. So. That's patient selection in my mind, Vladimir. And we had to find a site that could support those patients in a compliant way, meeting the regulatory requirements and licensing requirements. But when we put that in place, patients really wanted to use it. I guess what's the soapbox here? Patients do want decision-making options. And that starts first with the awareness of the trial and second, the opportunity to take part. That, that, that's where I'm seeing uh, various feedback that I think we all agree is a positive thing, but I'm starting to see deflection in, in the sponsor community, basically the people that fund it, to pay for it, right? That optionality is too expensive. And I'm worried that that will cause people to, we all we all pledge no going back, right? Um, and an economic downturn where people are trying to cut costs, these things that are supposed to add value, giving patients an option on how they want to participate in a trial, they like it, but is it a must-have versus a nice-to-have when the past however many years, it's just everyone has to do it the same way. And I think we all know that there's promise to it, but I'm starting to see people ignore it, and I don't like it. <laughs> but if we're seeing that patients are liking it and their participant patient rates are going up and their satisfaction rates are going up that we're starting to collect more satisfaction data now in this type of environment, like, you know, customer service satisfaction style of surveys. Um, then that in theory should, I mean, we know the model, right? This, this even goes back to some of the Tufts model stuff that if they stay in the trial longer, that means you can finish the trial with fewer patients. You'll have less, you know, issues and you're, you get more quality data that lets you get to a better endpoint, faster, cheaper, before your competitors, all that kind of stuff. So that's how you map the business case of optionality to value. But I'm just, uh, you know, go ahead. Well, Joe, I, I've actually heard, I think I've heard uh, sponsors be pulling back or a little nervous about making the cost comparison of fully DCT to fully brick and mortar I've actually heard a better conversation from sponsors when they've said, okay, wh why don't we give the option of DCT? And then the discussion really becomes just adding a DCT option for participants um, save us time. And then yeah. the, the cost discussion becomes totally different, right? I mean, the it's totally worthwhile when you see how the improved recruitment rates um, and it ceases to become brick and mortar cost versus fully DCT costs, which is the discussion, okay. I think, sometimes. Totally. Would you, would you consider the number one the number one problem in clinical trial execution is it still recruitment? 
I think it's totally still recruitment. I, okay. Yeah. So we've got some great questions in the queue here. In the chat, there's some great discussion about phase one in decentralized, and certainly whether that's long-term follow-up, maybe outside of that first in human dosing window, maybe there's some other strategies there, even during screening and eligibility. We also have in the chat, Shalon's question, <clears throat> asking about health systems and decentralized and their level of interest in adoption, which I think is a very timely question. We have the VA, we have Mayo as members of DTRA and quite a few other health systems looking to join as well. We have this NCATS NIH RFI, which is really about academic research centers and decentralized methods. What's their level of adoption for their own studies? Nevertheless, how they look to use those in multi-center research. Great conversations happening over there. We can certainly bring those into the microphone conversation over here, but I also wanna welcome Diana to the stage. Diana, feel free to introduce yourself for anyone that has not had the pleasure and share your thoughts or questions on your mind. And Diana, if you're new with Clubhouse, lower right of your screen should be a little unmute button. There you Got go. It. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I, I am not new, but new to speaking. So um, I come from Thread Research, uh, one of the DCT vendors here uh, with DTRA. So I might be doing this wrong, but uh, around the last question uh, around uh, Vladimir bringing up the cost to bring in DCT, I think you all touched on those points. Um, you know, what we're really looking at and myself is what's the cost not to have DCT? So um, to Nelson's point, the optionality so each patient is an investment. It is an upfront investment. Um, but what's that cost to lose a participant or to not have that participant? Your time to market, um, the return of investment there. And then when you open that up to a patient to be uh, hybrid and give them those options, now you're looking at those studies that have 30 sites, but there may be so many more that aren't close to a site. So time to enrollment, getting those to those enrollment goals faster. Um, you know, we've already seen quite a bit of an improvement um, when trying to open up those studies then to DCT. So that's that's the question that we have on a lot of our calls is, okay, what's the, what's the cost not to have DCT um, instead of looking at it as just a line item? Certainly feels like there's gotta be an opportunity cost, especially in an increasingly competitive environment. If, if patients are, in NASH trials and there is one study in a competitive space where flexibility is being made available, but not for another, where we know we see data time and again, that burden is one of the top barriers for research participants across disease areas, burden of travel, burden of time off from work. It's gotta be the leading addressable barrier that we can handle. Does it make one study less competitive in today's environment is a, is certainly a, a fair question to ask when we're thinking about the cost and the investment. Jane? Uh, Diana, I, I applaud all of your comments and I would say my assessment is that we couldn't be doing the study I was mentioning before successfully unless we had put DCT methods in. And that was actually part of the plan. It's a study designed to help measure what is the impact in this setting 
and how important these tools are for patients to be able to participate. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have a, a daughter with a rare condition, and so we're always looking for trials because that's a way for her to get care. And I live six hours from um, one of the main sites for her conditions. And so I'm, the site doesn't yet have um, an option for us to participate from far away. So being the networking uh, skills that we have here in, in business development, I'm always trying to knock on their door to open it up to us. Um, you know, and, and that's where you also get that patient feedback, right? So, so if my opinion mattered in that participant population, I would be championing to allow us to join those trials, but for right now we can't. And Diana, is that study, is that type of work that's happening, I assume that's more investigator initiated, it's more research just running at that institution as compared to being a multi-center trial? It's starting that way, but I'm seeing with this condition, to it's starting to broaden. So I'm going to see this probably opening up to other trials soon and, and hopefully, um, outside of that academic institution that it'll be opening up to uh, bio, biotechs. It, it's, first off, it's great to hear about more research opportunities for families in need, but it's also a great reminder of Shalon's question back in the chat from the beginning when we're thinking about health systems and academic research centers. Are these tools democratized? Are they available for the individual investigator to be able to deploy for their research? Um, I see some uh, a friend from uh, Apple is in the room, and it has me thinking back to, you know, the democratization that Apple did by launching Research Kit in the first place, and um, why is it still a challenge for individual investigators? Is it a lack of awareness? Is it a lot of a lack of uh, technical confidence in using some of these approaches that can help to improve access, knowing, especially in a rare disease, the distance that entire families um, have to manage in order to make participation a reality. Yeah, you just you just hit on a topic that uh, might maybe should be a, a whole nother session. And, you know, when you call out companies like Apple and Google and others, you think about the consumerization of the type of experience in a clinical trial that has just never really happened. And I mean, I could go on, I'm sure many others could go on for the things they wish they had, like things that they take in their normal life. I think think about Apple, what they've done with the watch, it came out like, oh, I would never be able to use that in a clinical trial. It's like, I'm going to use that at home. And then all these little pieces started getting 510k approved within the watch. I'm like, oh, actually, maybe, maybe there is something there. And it's a way better experience than some of the other devices I've seen, right? But like beyond that, think about having, being able to guide patients through the process. Um, I think it was Joe Kim that talked about like turn by turn directions in for a site or for a patient, what do you do exactly next with what system, in what place, in what, you know, what dose, all that kind of thing. Like, that kind of stuff that we have in our day-to-day -day life is just not here. I remember, I remember back in, let's see, it was 2009 when I was at Medidata. And it was Glenn that said to all of us internally, and, and for those of you who don't know, Glenn DeVries, um, he said, when they, when they started doing the EDC thing, it was like, we're going to float this on top of the open internet. And this is when they started in like 2002, you know, really getting into pharma. And they thought it was crazy. 
you're going to put like clinical data on the open internet? What? <laughs> I'm freaked out buying stuff on eBay, putting my credit card on the internet. You're going to put clinical data. He used existing infrastructure to make it work and it grew to a $7 billion company, right? And he was also saying that at work, and this is again, to early 2000s, we're still tied to like Internet Explorer 6 and the applications in pharma are horrible. And when you go home, you had all these things rising up from AOL and beyond AOL and all these different applications, even going into the cloud and software as a service, the consumer experience at home was way better than the stuff you had at work. And then the stuff at work actually got better, right? I would say from 2010 to 2016, things got better. Digital transformation occurred. People, companies moving to the cloud. And then, you know, your laptops and the the applications you were using were, were better. I think now we're back to that point where things are so fragmented. There's all these new companies out and, um, the experience is all over the place again and left over from the last 10 years of transformation. It takes far a while to then go through it all over again. Now the stuff at work is not great than the stuff that you have at home and it needs to happen again. I, I think we're at that, we're at that tipping point in the industry. Uh, I have a inside baseball question for you guys, which is sort of, I, I see the argument uh, for DCT adoption is so much easier when you talk about recruitment speed versus things like retention, which I think are much harder to prove. They, they sort of require a company to run their own trial and compare it head to head sort of. I, and I'm, I'm wondering why, I mean, a couple of you guys brought up the retention benefits. I, I think it's so tough to show versus recruitment benefit. And I'm curious why that angle is being pursued. I can tell you why, Nelson, because you have to marry data from a couple of different spots to really demonstrate retention. And so it's there. It just requires a different set of variables. And it's not as intuitive as watching the recruitment measures. Well, we can stay tuned for some data and evidence coming out of the radial trial in Europe being run by the IMI Trials at Home team as a head-to-head comparison, a multi, uh, multi-arm trial in diabetes that will include an arm randomized for brick and mortar, an arm randomized for um, other more decentralized models, and hopefully get some data and insight out of that. Um, we have just a minute left. Anyone up on the stage that has a, a final view, a final perspective, a final push, a final call that we have not gotten to today? No takers, no brave soul with that last minute left. Well, I'd like to thank everybody for joining. Joe actually did a great setup that in two weeks we will come back with Joe. And that will be on Friday, April 14th for those participating live here on Clubhouse, where we'll talk about your favorite consumer experience, your favorite consumer facing app. Which of those would you love to see brought into clinical research to make its impact? These conversations, many of them, we don't have the answers right here, but we hopefully we have some great discussion and, and ideas sparking. We can keep those going on LinkedIn, but if one of these topics you'd love to double click on, go deeper, help be a co-host for an upcoming session, drop a line to myself, Jane Miles, Amir Kalali, or you can always email the secretariat secretariat at dtra.org. Let us know that you'd like to share the stage with us on an upcoming week 
on any of these topics or more that maybe we've just left behind today or just whet your appetite around. Now, uh, there is a one jargon watch update. I just got a very important bit of breaking news from Clubhouse that they're changing the name of clubs to houses. This to me, folks, is an example of why we shouldn't waste too much time thinking about jargon like decentralized clinical trials. I'm not sure why I had to get an email and an alert notification in the Clubhouse app, but stay tuned because we'll no longer be calling this the Decentralized Trials Club. This will be the Decentralized Trials House, and I'm sure that's going to change all of our lives for the better. In the meantime, have a fabulous weekend. Thanks so much for joining us here today, and we will see you not next week. We'll see you the week after. Thanks again, everybody.